The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I'm delighted to welcome my guest this afternoon, Mr. Stephen Apfelbaum. He is a fellow of the Ecological Society of America and founder and chairman of Applied Ecological Services, which is one of the largest ecological sciences and restoration firms with offices across the United States and projects worldwide. He is co-author of Restoring Ecological Health to Your Land, which was written to help landowners and land stewards develop and implement land restoration programs. He's also the author of the award-winning book, Nature's Second Chance, which was named one of the top 10 books for understanding what we can do about climate change. Mr. Apfelbaum and Applied Ecological Services have contributed to some of the most widely recognized innovative model projects addressing land use change, wildlife, stormwater, and human quality of life. He is also featured in the film Unbroken Ground, which explores the connection between food, agriculture, and climate change. He holds adjunct lectureship positions and research appointments at Harvard Graduate School of Design and other institutions. And today we are going to be speaking about his new book, S is for Soils, his two epiphanies, and we are going to discuss how soil health is connected to human health. Welcome, Mr. Apfelbaum. Well, thank you, Melinda. Pleasure being with you. Well, we have a lot to talk about because you've had two epiphanies, and we're going to start with the first, and it was really the foundation for S is for Soils. This is a delightful book that really explains the value and importance of soil, not only for human health, but planetary health and how we can improve what we have been destroying over the generations. I want to know who you wrote this book for. Well, everybody asks who's the audience, and because we couldn't decide, we wrote actually three books. S is for Soils is written for a, allegedly a high school age audience, but actually for adults. And then there's another volume called Digging Deeper in Soils that was written by a, a partnering organization called KidsGardening.org that wrote a curriculum for grade school children that springboards off of S's for Soils. And then there's a third book that hasn't come out yet, and that book is a children's book that the illustrator and wonderful artist, Rob Dunlavy from the Boston area, who did the illustrations for S's for Soils and for Digging Deeper into Soils, he's working on the children's book version of the story which has a wonderful little soil invertebrate called a springtail that's a narrator that takes you from the lower horizons in the soil through the upper and up into the open air and makes all sorts of discoveries. So that book is still in in production. Well, this is an important series. I love the dedication. It's to fellow earthlings, including the 95% of terrestrial life that resides in the soil, our extended family. We do take soil for granted, it seems. I think less so. I think we're beginning to wake up to its importance, 
but I think it's hard for us to understand to get our heads around just how many organisms live in the soil, how vital it is, and how do we get back a healthier soil after so many years of destruction? It's remarkable. I did a little self-exploration in our neighborhood. I took soil samples following standard technical procedures from an organic cornfield and a conventional cornfield, probably a four or 5,000-year-old native prairie right across the street from our farm. And then our prairie restoration that's been done now since about 40 years. And then also included a couple of green roofs that are planted in native vegetation in Chicago. And I asked a simple question that biologists tend to ask when they're trying to learn fundamental things about systems. I asked how many species of microbes, and microbes includes fungi and bacteria and arachna and other organisms, and what's the relative abundance? You know, Are there more of one particular species than another? And what I learned from that was kind of startling. What I basically learned was that the two cornfields were nearly identical, regardless of whether one was organic and the other was conventional. And those were all bacterial-dominated. So about a 1,000 species or taxa of bacteria were identified. And there were dozens and dozens of species that were in very, very high population abundance. And then to bookend that, the 4,000, 6,000-year-old prairie was primarily fungal-dominated. Hmm. And fungi species, you know, about, I think it was about 800 species of fungi and bacteria but about 600 species of fungi that were identified or taxa, and the bacteria were in very low abundance. And the green roofs were very much like the two cornfields with the bacterial domination. And then our 40-year-old prairie restoration was intermediate between the cornfields and the long-lived prairie remnant across the street from our farm. So what I began learning was that there's fundamental differences in the number and populations of organisms that live in the soil, that if there's a lot of green tissue that's rapidly decomposable, those are primarily bacterial-dominated systems, perhaps. And the long-lived, deep-rooted, native perennialized landscapes like the prairie remnants, prairie systems, they seem to really require fungal species that it takes a bit longer to break down the cellulose and the lignin compared to the green leafy high nitrogen tissue in a cornfield. So the fungal species seem to be dominant in those systems with the lignified and more woody plant material. So fundamental differences. Mm -hmm. In terms of the quality of soils in an organic system versus one that had antibiotics and pesticides applied, the longer the farm has been under organic management or regenerative type farming operation, I would think that those soils would vary, even though they haven't been measured as such. Maybe we didn't use the right tools of measurement, but common sense would tell you that a soil that hasn't had a lot of antibiotics applied to it, essentially that's what a pesticide is, or a lot of herbicides, you would think that the soil organisms would be more diverse in that organic managed system. But that's not what I found. Yeah, I found this that is they fascinating. Were essentially the same, yeah. which is startling to me. It is. 
And is that a universal conclusion or generalization? I don't think it is. I hope it isn't. But that's what I found in our own neighborhood. And I'm now repeating that test and going further afield and including all the natural areas in, in the county, all the savannas and woodlands and wetlands and different prairie types. Yeah. And comparing the the working land, the alfalfa fields and cornfields. Yeah. And soybean fields in the same soil types. Right. Well, it's so interesting. I'm thinking about, of course, your work is in soil microorganisms, and I think about gut microorganisms. And we want to talk yeah. about how a healthy soil is related to a healthy gut and a healthy plant and healthy people. And when we think about the human that takes antibiotics, for example, we know that we disrupt the organisms in our gut. We know that that creates dysbiosis. And that's where I came to the conclusion that if you're applying essentially antibiotics to a soil, we would think that that would have a negative consequence as well. So I'd want to see a lot more data looking at that. Likewise, Melinda. Yeah. Exactly. This is great research. It's so important that this is done. And I know that there is similar research going on at Rodale. And I know that when I've interviewed, for example, one of the farm managers there, he explained they were looking at different levels of nutrients in plants, beneficial nutrients, of course, to human health, when the soil was operated in a more organically managed system. So I'm really interested in this kind of research. It's fascinating, and there's quite a bit going on in the space right now. I'm learning about the soil microbe science. I'm not a microbiologist, so it's just fascinating to me Mm -hmm. to learn quickly. Well, you say don't call soil dirt and that soil is truly alive. And you explain in this book, you say, how do you tell healthy soil from unhealthy soil? So because we just had this conversation about you're looking at different soil types in your immediate region, how do you tell healthy soil from unhealthy soil? What are you looking for exactly? Well, what soil health is being defined and there's a series of scholarly exercises underway currently to better define it, figure out what tests to use to actually measure it, what metrics to that are found most meaningful as indicators. But it generally, what we've been using is a measure of soil carbon, the, the compaction of the soil, the water infiltration capacity in the soil, and then the nature of the life found in the soil and growing on the soil. Those are general characteristics of health. You find generally more life in and on the soil. Higher infiltration rates if the underlying soil structure is in place and if the root systems and the fungi are all collectively building soil porosity, moving water and nutrients down and up and horizontally through the soil. So those three measurements or three characteristics is what we typically use. And there's all sorts of other measurements. You can look at aggregate stability of the structure of the soil particles. You can look at the chemistry of the soil. But because those types of things vary widely across soil types, even though they're important to measure as metrics, the other three characteristics we typically focus on, and then depending upon the project, we'll add you know, the, the soil chemistry. Mm-hmm. We'll add the genomics at a deeper level, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And that seemed to be giving us reasonably 
good insights. And by genomics, that basically tells us who dominates. Is it bacteria? Is it fungi? What's the fungal to bacteria ratio? Mm. Are they anaerobic bacteria? Are they aerobic bacteria? Which tells you whether it's the oxygen supply to the root systems is available to grow plants that might be terrestrial plants rather than wetland plants, mm-hmm. which are found in anaerobic environments. So a number of pretty simple strategies and a number of increasingly complex ways to measure health that are being debated globally mm-hmm. right now. Will you write that the buzz of life in healthy soil translates into the nutrition we receive from food grown in the soil and the availability of trace minerals and nutrients in our food results from the breakdown process by soil organisms and plant uptake. So in fact, we are what they eat, they being the microbes, soil fungi, and plants. And I think that is what makes soil, or what should make soil, so critical or vital to the study of nutrition and medicine combined. We are at the halfway mark, so I need to take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Mr. Stephen Apfelbaum. He is the author of S is for Soils, which is the book that we're focusing on today. He's also a very well-known and respected ecologist. He is a fellow of the Ecological Society of America and founder and chairman of Applied Ecological Services. So, you say that this book was the result of an epiphany. What was yes. the epiphany? After four or five years of working with the top soil scientists, soil carbon scientists around the world, I began realizing that a lot of the scientists, including myself, didn't speak the same language, that some of the basic facts that we understood or thought to be factual were not stated accurately or stated differently by each of the professionals trained differently. So several of us began a process of recording and creating a PowerPoint slide around every tidbit, every factoid, every point of agreement, point of disagreement that we heard in every one of our many, many, many meetings with this team. And that basically began to parse out the real differences in what people thought that were plant chemists and agronomists that work with soil and soil scientists working with carbon. Everybody had a slightly different perspective. And it's those different perspectives that we try to simplify down graphically with the artwork and with very brief expository statements in this book, Essence for Soil. I think it is so easy to read and understand, and you take very complex topics and make them understandable for people like myself that haven't spent years studying soil science. So this is why I really think this book is so critical to be in science classrooms and to be shared with people who are in different fields, but we're all connected. So you mentioned trying to dispel some of the myths and legends about soil. And Of course, I turn to the page that you describe, Myths and Legends of the Soil, and one that I have heard for many years, which you dispel, is the fact that it's going to take a thousand years to develop one inch of topsoil. And you say, no, no, that's not true at all. In 10 years, you can get five to seven inches. So how did we become misinformed about how long it was going to take to develop topsoil? I have absolutely no idea, but I can remember being told by Nature Center naturalists when I was a child and by grade school teachers those myths. 
And I think it was probably because when I grew up, I'm still growing up, by the way. I know. When I started growing up, the soils were largely in a state of rapid decline in the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. The decline started to slow down probably in the mid-70s here in the Midwest with improved soil management practices, farm management programs. So maybe because we were living in a context where everything was declining, I mean, literally, the soil erosion problems were very serious in the 50s and 60s, like in the 30s in some places. Maybe that's why we never saw or learned about the upside, how quickly soil can recover, which we're now learning about. Mm-hmm. You have a section here that is titled, What is Required to Restore and Keep Soil Healthy? What should we do? That section is attempting to boil down what the average person can do and what a farmer can do and what a grade school child can do. And I think the the lesson I've learned, there's, there's a wonderful graphic that makes me laugh every time I see it. It's the graphic titled, Trillions of Soil Microbes Are Now Out of Work. <laughs> I love that, yeah. And it shows all these very perplexed little facial expressions on microbes that are in a line pointing to an unemployment office. Right. So I think part of the story is put the microbes back to work and they will work for us. It's the little creatures that dominate the planet and our bodies and our lives that really can help bring soil back to health if we just do the right things. And what does it mean to do the right things? The simple version of that is to keep the soil always covered with vegetation and preferably the right vegetation, and we could talk about that, really minimize disruption of the soil system. So if you're planting, like many farmers do with no-till and one-pass low-disturbance cropping, you really try to minimize the changes in the soil system. Try not to plow, try not to rototill to deep levels. Making sure that the nutrients that are in the soil are reasonably balanced. And there's a pretty significant myth that we're learning about now that there's a movement that's been called the remineralization movement. And that's basically a movement to reintroduce amendments to soil because we think we've created soils deficient in in many trace nutrients and minerals. And what we're learning is when we plant the right plants, deep-rooted plants, that the remineralization for many of the trace elements, including highly deficient trace elements, are brought up from the deeper soil strata by those deeper-rooted plants back up to the surface. Wow. The plants will remineralize. There are locations of the country deficient in iodine and boron and selenium and places with excessive selenium and iodine and so on. So there are places where growing nutritionally balanced plants will depend on some sort of level of amendment. But most of the remineralization may not be necessary just by planting the right plants and putting trillions of microbes back to work, basically. Well, you say that in our backyards and communities, we can revegetate eroded soil, clean contaminated soil, and deliver clean water to the soil for growing our gardens and lawns. We can feed the soil organisms in our gardens with compost, 
avoiding caustic fertilizers, herbicides, and pesticides. And I, for one, just love the magic of compost and mulch and grinding up my leaves and putting them on my garden. And I have witnessed the transformation of a soil that was really poor into one that is really deep, dark, rich. And I can only think that it's because of very simple activities, not a lot of expensive inputs, but saving back compost and using mulch and leaves. And my goodness, I've seen the transformation and it's miraculous. So we have the power to make a positive impact. We have seen it as well on our farm, Melinda, in southern Wisconsin, where when I bought the farm in 1980, the average soil organic carbon level was about 1.2%. Now, on average, it's a little over 5%. Some areas are closer to 8%. So that means going from about 50 to 75 tons of carbon per acre up to four to 600 tons of carbon per acre. Wow. And that increases water holding capacity, nutrient holding capacity. The plant growth has been phenomenal. The peaches that we produce are pretty remarkable, even to people that might not like peaches, and there aren't many people like that on the planet. <laughs> right. Well, you talk about, as you mentioned before, not all farming is the same. And what happens when we disrupt the structure of the soil? You also talk about how not all ranching is the same. And anybody who's driven through the parts of the country where there are cattle on feedlots, you just know in your gut that this can't be right from the stench and just the way that the animals seem so unhealthy and unhappy. And you show how continuous grazing can truly harm soils. And then you also show how you call it AMP grazing. What is that? That's Adaptive multi-paddock grazing, that's a term Dr. Richard Teague at Texas A&M has used. It basically breaks a ranch into small little pastures, and then you quickly mobilize the cattle or the sheep through those pastures onto the next pasture with fresh grass, and then you allow each little paddock to recover for an appropriate length of time. So it's a way to try to use livestock to rapidly move across the landscape and allow adequate recovery time, kind of the way bison and wildebeest and caribou in, in the Arctic move across the landscape. Mm. If you don't use paddocks, the cattle go back to the same places with the best plants every day and consume those, and they become weaker, lose their vigor, and weedy plants become prevalent. This grazing practice counters overgrazing, even though you can put significantly more cattle or sheep on the land, but they're there for a much shorter period of time exposing the plants to grazing activity. And this really speaks to the issue of climate change. We hear some people say we need to get away from eating meat, but here you've got an example of how cattle and other grazing animals can actually improve the soil help sequester carbon. So maybe it's not an all or none type of issue, but it's one where it's the way in which animals are raised and how much of the animal is consumed. It's no coincidence that some of the deepest, most fertile soil in North America are on grassland soils, areas where grasslands have been present for several thousand years or longer. 
And it's no coincidence that those same areas were the primary locations where the large grazing animals like bison, buffalo, and North America grazed. The, the relationship between very large herds of grazing buffalo and grassland plants built the deep fertile corn belt soils. So the opportunity to emulate nature and graze the way nature historically grazed is what this adaptive multipedic process uses. Mm-hmm. We just have a couple of minutes left. I suspect that our time together might fly. But I want to touch on the second epiphany because it relates to further writing in your book about biodiversity and well-being. And you say that you went to an eco-health conference recently where you had your second epiphany. Yes. Tell me about that. Yes, I went with no expectations to a kickoff meeting for an an organizing meeting for a new group called the EcoHealth Network that met at the Missouri Botanic Garden. Medical doctors and ecologists and other types of scientists, epidemiologists and a whole range, some nutritionists, Melinda, were present. And the epiphany I finally had, I've been wondering if it was possible and how it might be possible to actually do research that was adequate and appropriate to link human health to soil microbiology health to human microbiome health. And finally, there was a wonderful series of studies by a a UK and Australian group that did really an impressive body of research that's still underway and, and soon to be published where they introduced people to different doses of nature of different types. And so they introduced people to wild lands, to manicured parklands, to asphalt parking lots, to lawns. And then they looked at the the bacteria and fungi on the person and began the process of looking at the microbiome within the people. And they simultaneously looked at the the soil organisms, and the aerosol or the aerial dispersed organisms. And basically what they convincingly demonstrated to me was that there's this remarkable body of knowledge now that's showing that if you hang out with some dosing, I don't quite understand the dosing needs yet, how much time you need to hang out in a wild area or a park, that you are exposed to a more diversity of microorganisms that enhance the balance of microorganisms in your life, perhaps even including what's in your gut. And I, I'm looking forward to their publication to learn if they go to that, if they're able to go to that level and correlate soil health with the microbiome diversity of the ecosystem with the gut flora microbiome. I'm hoping that's part of the level of scientific certainty that they're able to take this uh, research to, which is what I was 
so excited about. Well, that will have to be our next conversation. We'll have to save that for the next chapter. We need to close, unfortunately, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Stephen Apfelbaum, fellow of the Ecological Society of America and founder and chairman of Applied Ecological Services. He is the author of a terrific book, S is for Soils. Thank you so much, Mr. Applebaum, for being with me. You're welcome, Melinda. And that book can be downloaded from the Lower Sugar River Watershed Association website, nonprofit that's selling the books. Great. I'll provide a link to that. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you.